Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Hopefully, you've listened to the previous episode. If you haven't, I would invite you to go there first, as this episode is going to continue the idea that begins there. Our passage for this episode is Luke chapter 15, verses 17 to 24. Let's read that now. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We left this parable hanging in the last episode with a young man on a downward spiral, sitting in a pigsty, left to compete with them for food. But it's down at that point that he looks back towards the father and reconsiders his relationship with him. Jesus calls this a time of coming to his senses or returning to himself. He realizes the value of the life he had before. He remembers the favor that his father had shown to everyone, not just the family, but even the staff. He thought the grass was greener outside of that place, but has realized that it really wasn't the case, and he begins to ponder a return to that which he had left. And then he begins to devise a way in which he can come back to his father and the safety of that setting once again. Everyone around Jesus would be leaning forward with interest here. The people on the table Jesus is sitting at were certainly acquainted with the repercussions of this man's actions. Some had similar experiences through their various career choices which had brought shame on their family or community along the way. This sense of shame extended to their worshipping community as well. Due to being publicans, tax collectors and other shady characters, they forfeited their place in the synagogue, considered religiously unclean and beyond spiritual repair. The Pharisees, who were previously sneering at Jesus being at this table, saw a handful of legal issues with this man's use of his inheritance and what he'd done to shame his family. There was even a provision in the law of Moses that such a person could be brought out and stoned to death for the shame he'd caused. Essentially, returning to the Father seemed like a big risk to everyone gathered around Jesus at that time. The best possible outcome of this in everybody's mind was that he could just live in obscurity so that no further damage would be done. There would be no real restoration, but at least there would be no death either. Jesus' parable indicates the young man is aware of all that. He knows the father's proximity is his safest bet, but in his mind, a heap of things have to fall into place for it to happen, and his own relationship with the father will never be the same again. So he sets up what he feels is a good strategy. He'll return and happily be a hired servant. He'll take a place where he is provided for and fed and live life in the mere vicinity of the Father. 
even at that place, distant but associated, he knows his life will be much better than it is now. In fact, he's not sure he'll even get that because he deserves different treatment altogether. In his mind, some of this strategy is going to rely on the mercy of his father. The Pharisees and the people at the table would have mixed emotions on this approach. There are so many issues in play, so many emotions aroused, so many unknown elements if this was actually playing out in their community. Given the state of the nation at the time, a boy returning like this to ancient Galilee could go any way. But in this parable, Jesus takes the option that leads to flourishing for everybody concerned. Central to this flourishing is the parabolic father, who is head and shoulders above any father the Galilean community could imagine. Jesus tells us the son returns with his repentant homecoming speech well rehearsed. He has worked out the posture that he needs to show. He knows the shame he needs to acknowledge. He has accepted the position in life he needs to offer back. And he understands that any favor at this point is dependent on the mercy of dad. The audience will be expecting a tense, perhaps even hostile exchange to occur as the two men come face to face. That's what the Pharisees in their mercy-deficient state would expect. That's what the sinners at Jesus' table would expect due to that Pharisaic judgment around them and their own sense of natural consequence. But as the young man trudges up the driveway in his rags, reciting lines in his head the whole way, he looks up to see his father running towards him. It turns out that dad has been watching all along. He's been hoping all along for this day. And instead of judgment, we see affection and embrace. The son starts to rattle off his speech about being a servant and earning his keep at a distance, but the father is hearing none of it. Instead, there is instant restoration into the family and an immediate celebration. He is given the family robe, not a servant uniform. He is given a feast, not a ration. He is fully restored, not merely tolerated. The shame is forgiven. The blown inheritance absorbed. Any talk of judgment or death done away with. No father in the minds of Jesus' audience was like that. And that's where this parable also sings. The father in this parable is, of course, God, who, unlike Israel's fathers, remained true to his character. There's a powerful description of that heart in Psalm 103. It's part of the liturgies of ancient Israel, so the Pharisees really should have known better. Here's what it says in verses 8 to 18. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. With those character traits in mind, Jesus shows us how the Son is seen in the eyes of the Father. His Son was lost and dead, not holidaying or on hiatus, not dormant or taking a break from his faith, not deconstructing, but dead and lost. 
not because he'd been cast out by the Father, but because he had chosen to leave the Father. The Father was counting his losses here, hence the idea of death, but still mysteriously hopeful of his son return. Once the son returned, he was deemed alive and found again. He never stopped being a son, but his life status was determined by his proximity to the Father. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 5 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Outside of the Father, there is death and loss. But coming back to the Father in faith makes us alive again. The parable shows us that in this sort of death, the Father is looking for our return. Throughout all the New Testament, including what I just read out, we are constantly shown that the offer to return is found through Jesus. And the parable shows us that being alive again leads to celebration in heaven. Now let's reflect together on this. In the previous episode, I asked if you identified with the young man who had a string of bad life choices behind him. Through this episode, you may see yourself a bit in the strategic thinking of the man as he ponders his state and how he might return to where he needs to be. You might see the merit of serving a God who can get you out of where you are now. But you may also have an idea of God where you would be merely tolerated from afar. Past experiences in religion that were less than stellar might have fed into this thinking, and your own musings on the idea might have filled in the gaps of this mindset as well. But Jesus presents a God who is not like that here. To be sure, it's appropriate to come in what we could call contrition. The better and more complete biblical word is repentance. We should come, as the Son did, with the correct understanding that we have acted in sinful ways. We should come with the knowledge that we are dependent on the mercy of God. These are in fact all necessary mindsets to bring to Jesus. The opposite would be to come to God all sorted and boastful of your good life. It's almost like you'd be bringing a resume to God instead of repentance. The Bible calls that pride and self-righteousness, and God won't work with that. But in that repentant state, know that restoration will come. God is waiting for you. Even though in sin you're dead, He is still longing to see you walking up the driveway to Him. He's longing to declare you alive. He's longing to bring you back into sonship to celebrate your return. He will absorb your debt of sin. Jesus has paid for it already, so you don't have to. He will forgive your shameful ways because his own son, the third son of the parable, has covered your shame with his blood. Friend, come out of the pig pen of the sinful life and come back to the Father who was longing to restore you to his family once again. Perhaps you might want to pray along with me now. You can in just one moment, but right after this, do me a favor. Go to a church close to you. Find a minister willing to listen and explain what you just did. Returning to family is not just a heaven thing. The Father has one for you to be part of now. Let's pray together. Jesus, I acknowledge the life of sin I am in now. It's a bit like the pig pen of this parable, fruitless and bitter. 
I know that there is a better life and a better future to be found in the Father, and I can find him through you. So I place my faith in you now. I ask that you forgive me of my sin and cover my shame through your blood that was shed for me. I lean into the Father's offer of restoration and family, and I choose to follow you, Jesus, into the new life that is on offer to me through you. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.